0: well good morning once again if you would turn with me to mark chapter one as we continue our series in the gospel of mark rediscovering jesus turn with me to mark one and actually this morning we are not going to get past uh, verses 28 actually i think we're going to stop there this morning Um, mark 1 21 through 28 this morning and then we'll pick up uh, 29 and following into chapter 2 next week so let's uh, look at Mark 1, 21-28, and before we do, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word, thank you for a beautiful day, thank you that each day, Lord, it really is a gift that you are our Father, you're the creator God, the one who has made all the stars, the sun that blazes and warms our earth, but at the same time, you're the God who's created us and, and know literally each hair on our head know that our days truly are numbered. Lord, You hold all things in Your hand. You literally do hold the whole world in Your hand. Thank You, Lord, that You are that mighty and supreme and awesome. And I pray this morning we would be awed by You, Jesus, and awed by Your authority and Your power and Your compassion and Your love. So speak to us this morning. Open our ears and our eyes. Open our hearts to receive you this morning, Jesus. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right, Mark 1, 21 through 28. And let's let's look at this passage together. I'll I'll read it to us this morning. And they went into um, they went into Capernaum. I always want to say Capernaum. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. Not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Well last week we saw as we're starting the have started the series on rediscovering Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, last week we saw Uh, And we heard Jesus' voice for the first time in the Gospel of Mark. And what does He say? That invitation that Jesus gives the first time His voice is heard in Mark, He says, follow me, right? We looked at that last week. So we are rediscovering, I hope, together that Jesus, the one that we thought who He is and we know so much about, is really different than who we thought He really was. And that's what Mark is showing us. And I hope, it's my hope, and it's been my prayer, and I've been praying this regularly for us as a congregation, for us, for you here this morning, is that you'll be able to answer this burning question that Jesus uh, poses Himself in chapter 8 of Mark when He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you really say that I am? So it's my prayer as we look at God's Word together, week in and week out, that Jesus is going to be opening our eyes to see who He really is. So last week, just as we heard the first time Jesus spoke in the Gospel of Mark, this week we see for the first time jesus teaches in a synagogue and, and he performs a public miracle so on the sabbath day jesus goes with his friends to the local synagogue he's in capernaum in the service there and he is invited to teach and i'm sure the members of that synagogue were not expecting what jesus was going to be doing that day and how he preached that day and so how does mark spell this out for us the crowd and even Jesus' friends weren't expecting that Jesus was going to be so different than the Jesus that they had just known or just met. So Mark tells us, and again, he uses this word immediately. We'll see that again and again. If you remember, Mark was essentially the secretary of, of the Apostle Peter. And so Mark, when he wrote his Gospel, basically took everything that he heard Peter preach about and condensed it into his Gospel. And it really, uh, the Gospel of Mark really does pick up on Peter's personality. Because he uses this word immediately, immediately, immediately. You see it all throughout his gospel. So again, he tells us, and he uses it twice, I think, in this passage we look at this morning. He tells us immediately the people recognized that there was something different about Jesus. Now, everyone who had been present that morning at that service said that Jesus spoke with authority. Mark tells us that two times in verse 22 and 27, that Jesus preached, or when he taught that morning, the people recognized something immediately different that Jesus had this authority. And we don't know what the content of Jesus' sermon was that morning. And it wasn't the words that had a profound impact on that congregation that morning. It was who was giving the message and His authority. And this is the first time that Mark uses this word authority in his Gospel. And the word authority literally means, this is kind of cool, the word authority literally means out of the original stuff. Isn't that interesting the word authority literally means out of the original stuff in fact we get our word author someone who pens a novel pins a story pins a movie pins something creates something the word our word author comes from the word authority out of the original stuff now what does this mean for us it means that jesus taught about life with original versus derived authority. Jesus taught about life with original versus derived authority. Now, what do I mean when I say derived authority? Uh, Say you wanted to become a police officer. Maybe some of y'all are aspiring someday as you're growing up to become a police officer. What does a police officer have to do? Are you born a police officer? Uh, You know, you go to to a college and you take criminal justice and you graduate with a degree. Once you get that degree, are you declared a police officer? No, you have to go to the police academy, You have to go through rigorous training, right? And once you've passed that training, you have been vetted, and they've checked your background, and you've done everything that you need to do to become a police officer. You graduate, and you are bestowed this authority, right? You are given this authority to begin to be a police officer and uphold the law, right? You aren't born into it. It's just not given to you. You have to go through a process, right? That is what derived authority means. But Jesus had original authority. He didn't have derived. Authority, Mark's telling us. He had original authority out of the original stuff. You see, Jesus didn't when he was preaching that morning in the synagogue he wasn't just clarifying what the people already knew from the Old Testament. He wasn't interpreting the Old Testament way uh, in a way that the uh, Pharisees or the scribes had, had preached it. The people in the synagogue were, were awed. They were wowed by Jesus when he taught because they sensed this that Jesus was explaining the story of their lives because He was the author of their lives. That's a big difference, right? As He was preaching, people were hearing that He was explaining their lives in a way that they had never heard before because He was the author of their lives. And they were utterly dumbfounded. In fact, what does John 1 tell us about who Jesus was? We looked at this a few weeks ago, right? I asked you the question... What was God doing before the creation of the world? That's a great question, right? And we saw what God was doing before the creation of the world. Jesus gives us the answer in John that he was loving his son. And so we see, and Scripture's full of this, this picture that we worship, we know, we love, we commune with a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. You see that in the very beginning of the Bible in the book of Genesis when God's creating the world and he says, let us make man in our own image, right? And so we see this triune God even present in Genesis chapter one. We see God, the Father, creating the world, and He is speaking the world into existence. And that is the picture of the Son, because John chapter one tells us that in the beginning was the, you know, the Word. Right. So we have in the in the beginning, beginning of Genesis we have God the Father. We have the Son. He is the Word, and the world is spoken into existence. And we have the Holy Spirit as the dove fluttering up across the surface. Of the waters. So we see this picture of the Trinity even in Genesis chapter 1 and John tells us in John chapter 1 in the beginning was the Word the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through Him, without Him was not anything made that was made and so John is telling us in John chapter 1 that the Word that he's referring to is Jesus Himself so get this, in Mark uh, when Jesus is in the synagogue And he is speaking these words, and he knows these people because he's the author of them. It was the very word of God there speaking to them. No wonder they were in awe. What would that be like for Jesus to come to our congregation and and preach and teach? And he would know you because he is the author of you. So here, the word of God, Jesus was literally in their presence, speaking with them, not just with authority, right? Because Jesus was authority. He was out of the original stuff. So Mark goes on to show us that Jesus is authority over every aspect of those people's lives. And his point is to show us this morning that, and we're going to see this in the next several weeks, that Jesus is authority over every aspect of your life. Every suffering that you go through, every trial that you go through, every joy and victory that you celebrate in your life, nothing is outside of the auspice of God's power and His authority. And so this morning I have a one-point sermon. You're like, whew, finally a one-point sermon. Yeah, we can make it to Golden Corral by 12. That'd be great. This morning, we're going to see this. Uh, and and I, I pared this down because there was just so much here. And I, I lost the bet, Jerry, that I'm not going to do Mark in 29 sermons. No way. So, so We're going to see this morning that Jesus and His authority over the spiritual world. And we'll see in the next few weeks, and Mark plays this out very clearly, especially from... Uh, the end of chapter one throughout the uh, next several chapters about Jesus's authority over the physical world over uh, sickness uh, healing and those kind of things here we're going to see Jesus's authority over the the, uh, spiritual world his authority as king over the spiritual world if you're taking notes that's our only point this morning Christ and his authority as king over the spiritual world so Jesus is speaking in the synagogue He uh, is preaching and teaching, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, a man cries out as loud as he can in the congregation. I don't know if that's ever happened here in the history of Wellspring, or you've ever been to a church before. I don't know if you have. I've seen that before. It's a little bit awkward, but the pastor's preaching, right? And it's the middle of the church service, and somebody interrupts the service. And it's not like being a noisy child or something like that. It's somebody literally stands up and interrupts the pastor as he's preaching. It's happened to me before. I'll tell you the story. I'm not going to do it this morning, but if you want to find out the story, it's an interesting story. But to begin a church service and someone stands up and they interrupts the service loudly shouting, what would that feel like here, right? Just if you can imagine what that would feel like. Wouldn't it be awkward, right? If Sam Long just stood up and interrupted the service. Sorry, Sam, I didn't mean to pick on you. Cut that out when you record this sermon. Say the name of it. Sorry, sorry, Sam. But yeah, it it would be very awkward, right? It would would just feel very, very awkward. It would would, would really create a funky atmosphere for the rest of the service, right? Well, this man, this demon-possessed man who had an unclean spirit, stood up, and as Jesus was preaching, he began to shout at the top of his lung these menacing, menacing words towards Jesus. Mark is not casual about the powers of darkness. You see this. Even in chapter 1, he mentions... Uh, a man or people with an, uh, an unclean spirit multiple times, and in a condensed book, only 16 chapters. The fact that he mentions this several times in just a few verse span means that he's not casual about the powers of darkness. In fact, Mark presents the powers of darkness as a true reality that that there are real powers of darkness that are waging war against God's authority and are waging war against God's kingdom and are waging war really in the life of God's redeemed. Now, I'm not saying that there is a demon lurking around every corner where we go, but I am saying, and I think we do minimize this in the church, and you don't hear this preached very often, but we do minimize that there are spiritual powers, there are real forces of darkness, folks, that are against His people. There are real forces of darkness against His church. There are real forces of darkness against you as His beloved Paul says that in Ephesians 6, right? The armor of God. You probably memorized that in Sunday school. Did anybody ever... Were y'all into the character Bible man? Remember Bible man? Oh, y'all are too young to remember Bible man. I remember Bible man. Mark is not casual about the spiritual spiritual forces of evil and darkness. Paul is not casual about the spiritual forces of evil. What does Paul say in Ephesians 6, 6 about this? Listen to what he says. He says, finally, believers, beloved... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, for put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we're fighting uh, you know, knights and horses and no. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. There is a real enemy to your soul, folks. It is the devil himself. Paul uses that word scheme, and that, that is an awful word. It means crafty, it means Uh, utterly deceitful that he is the father of lies and he schemes to undermine god's children he schemes and he delights to undermine the church so paul says put on the whole armor of god that you can stand against the schemes of the evil one." what did jesus tell us to pray do you remember remember when jesus taught us to pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name we pray this when you pray the lord's prayer you are praying against the spiritual forces of evil i don't know if you realize that or not When he says, Our Father, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, Thy kingdom come, I've already forgotten it. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who sinned against us or are are indebted against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Other versions of the Bible would say evil. One in the Greek, that's how it's read. Deliver us from the evil one. Jesus Himself, when we pray the Lord's prayer, we are praying against the spiritual forces of evil. Mark is not minimizing this. Scripture does not minimize it. Neither should you, as a believer, minimize this. Paul goes on to say that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, he says, but we we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Folks, this is real stuff. It's real. And I'm not trying to be all Frank Peretti on you and and make you think that there's a a demon under every book. And I'm not trying to say that, but it's a reality, folks. I took a team to Haiti back in 2010. I've taken teams there several times. But after the earthquake in January of 2010, the Lord laid it on our church's heart back in North Carolina to send a team down to see what we could do to help. And so in June of 2010, we took 19 adults and students down to Haiti. Uh, to help out in any way that we could and to do Bible clubs for children. We had an amazing week there that June, uh, ministered to tons of families, did construction, uh, gave away money. It was just such a, a blessing to be there and to see the amount of devastation. It was just unbelievable. I cannot believe the amount of devastation we saw because of that earthquake. But at the end of the week when we were there in June, we held an evangelistic service, if you will, for all of the kids that we had been reaching out to in that neighborhood. And these kids had nothing, really didn't. And at the end of the week, we had this big service, 150. We lost count after 150. I'm not sure how many kids were there. It was more than 150, just a ton of kids. And so we had spent this week uh, building relationships with them, loving on them, loving on their neighbors. That afternoon, that the final service of that week with these children, Pastor Abraham was giving this clear gospel presentation. We had prayed all week for him as he was preparing and getting ready to, to give these kids the good news that jesus loved them we came actually early that march march before we sent the team down in june we sent a reconnaissance team down it was myself and two other men from our church just to find out where we could do ministry we met up with the missionary and and, uh, met up with some of the pastors haitian pastors and they gave us a tour of port-au-prince the neighborhoods that were affected and all of port-au-prince was devastated by the earthquake and we went to the outside uh, community where this compound was the church had a compound You see that in a lot of Latin American countries, Haiti in particular. Churches or ministries will have these compounds with walls around them and usually within the compound there's a school, there's a church, there's usually a seminary or a Bible college. And in this compound where we were doing ministry, there was a church, there was a school, and there was a Bible college and a seminary. So we were given a tour around the neighborhoods of this one particular compound where we did ministry and Daryl the missionary and Pastor Abraham stopped in front of this uh, elaborate building never seen the kind of symbols on this building before and they said what do you think that building is and it looked like a church to me i said well it looks like a church he goes well it is a religious building but it is a voodoo temple it was just two streets away from where we were doing ministry very interesting And we thought well gosh I, you know tell us more about voodoo and all that kind of stuff Well, it turns out that voodoo is a very real and practiced religion in Haiti and it is alive and well and there are definite connections to Satanism or worship of Satan in fact uh, in 1791 and this is uh, history folks this is actually written down there was a group of voodoo priests who were tired uh, of the French you know uh, enslavement and encampment of Haiti as they took over the island of Haiti and so these voodoo priests sacrificed a black pig in a voodoo ritual all of the hundreds of slaves drank that pig's blood and then they asked uh, Satan for his help in libering, liberating Haiti from the French. In exchange, the, the, these priests would give the country over to Satan for 200 years and swore an allegiance to serve him. And then on January 1st, 1804, the nation of Haiti was born and thus began this demonic tyranny, if you will. Well, fast forward to our final week there in Haiti. We were having this worship service with kids. Uh, things were going well. Pastor Abraham was teaching his heart out kids were hanging on the edge of their seats, but the back row of children, we could notice there was some kind of commotion going on, and I was way up in the front, and one of my adult leaders, Dennis, who was in the back, Dennis is this ex-Air Force guy, a big old strapping guy, you just don't mess with Dennis, you know, you wouldn't touch this guy, Dennis is in the back, kind of pale as a, as a ghost, he was looking around the corner, and he turned around, and he motioned for me, like, try not to get everybody's attention, but, Stephen, you got to come, help, 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 so I try to sneak by and not distract all these children, and I come around the corner, and there's this man subdued on the ground this wiry gentleman subdued on the ground with about six guys on top of him, and they are going at it it looked like a cat fight just real i mean it was crazy they were going at it and it turns out that this guy was sent by the voodoo priest of that church several streets away to disrupt our service and to bring chaos at the service it's totally fascinating and terrifying at the same time what had happened is this guy had been sent by the priest with a bag of sugar to come and, and pour sugar into the diesel tank of the generator of this compound and so that it would completely disrupt our service. Well, in God's providence, there was a seminary also here on this compound and the student seminary students were being let out of class and they noticed this guy that they did not know, never seen before, fiddling with something on the, the diesel tank, trying to pour something in the diesel tank. Well, they said something to him and the guy started to dart towards where the children were. Well, these seminary guys tackled him. You never think you'd learn that in seminary, how to tackle a voodoo priest, you know, We had to learn how to tackle 101. I mean, they tackled this guy. And then he got away from him again and started to run towards the children. We don't know what he was going to do. And they tackled him again. And they just so happened to tackle him a second time right at the foot of Dennis. Dennis is like, ah, what do I do? So Dennis gets on the ground and tries to help him. And they literally hog tie this guy with a piece of rope. They restrain this guy. He's tied up on the ground. And I come around the corner, and here's this man foaming at the mouth, cursing as loud as he can in Creole. I didn't know what he was saying, but... He was cursed, cussing us in Creole. And the Lord just put it upon my heart to begin to read Scripture to him. And so I, grabbed, I ran up, I grabbed my Bible. Uh, several of the missionaries came around and they laid hands on him and he didn't like that and they began to pray in him, with him in Creole and I began to read Scripture to him and I, the Lord led me to read Colossians 1 and here's what I read to him. I said, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us to the kingdom of his Son that he loves. And in him we have redemption through the blood of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he, sir, is before all things. And in him all things held are held together. Silence we read the authority of jesus the preeminence and the excellencies and the majesties of jesus over him being silenced it's just astounding the power of god's word and the authority of christ so we kept reading this over him we were praying for him we offered him water water and he grew calmer and calmer and eventually the police came they they literally threw him in the back of the truck and parted him off do not know what happened probably wasn't good but folks, there are real spiritual forces around this world that we deal with. And this demon-possessed guy in our passage this morning, he was there to disrupt, to sidetrack, to take the focus away from Jesus and authority. But what did Jesus say? And what does he say to Jesus? Jesus, what do you want to do with us? The phrase, what do you want to do with us? What would you do with us, Jesus? Jesus. That phrase appears several times in the Old Testament, and, in, and when, it, when it appears in the Old Testament, what do you want to do with us? It's always in the context of war, combat. It's always in the context of a situation of confrontation. So if you were to modernize this phrase that this demon said to Jesus, Jesus, what do you have to do with us? It would probably be, you want a piece of me, Jesus? That's what it would sound like modernized. You want a piece of me, Jesus? Well, you can imagine what was racing through the crowds in this sanctuary, the syn- synagogue, How is Jesus going to handle this? And the man continues to rail against Jesus. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And then the demon begins to expose the identity of Jesus to create a mob seen in the synagogue, maybe, if you will. This demon wanted to fight with everything that he had to maintain its influence on this poor man's life. Now, I want you to notice something else here. This demon gives this declaration of who Jesus was. Did you notice, in his words, the sense of fear that the demon said this? Because he is encountering the author of the universe. I can't help but notice that this, this demon senses that it's the end of the road for him, if you will. What do you want to do with us? Because the coming of the King, Jesus, the inauguration of the King that we saw a few weeks ago when Jesus was baptized, and his father said, I am well pleased with you, Son meant the destruction and the end of this kingdom of darkness. And there's something else that I don't want us to miss. It's easy to miss, miss this, but where was Jesus when he was doing this? He was in the town of Capernaum, right? He was in the town of Capernaum. The Gospel of Matthew tells us that Jesus essentially called Capernaum his home base, if you will. Matthew 9 says, so Jesus got into a boat, he crossed over and came to his, his own city, Capernaum. In fact, Jesus, if you look at where Jesus did ministry throughout the Gospels, the town of Capernaum, the region of Capernaum is where he did more miracles and he spent more time than anywhere else he did ministry. In fact, it's in Capernaum. We remember when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. It's where he healed the nobleman's son. It was in Capernaum that he healed the demoniac. We'll see that in Mark chapter 5. It's where he uh, healed Peter's mother-in-law. That's the passage after this one. Uh, it's where he healed the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He healed the blind man. He healed the centurion servant. He healed the, healed the guy who was the paralytic and who was lowered through the roof, which we'll look at next week. So it would seem that Capernaum was the buckle of the religious belt, if you will, during Jesus' ministry. And, and, and we don't know whether if this happened before, this guy in the synagogue who made this big outburst, this big scene. We don't know if this happened in Capernaum before, but I, I do think Mark gives us this situation in the synagogue with this demon-possessed guy. He gives us the situation to show us and tell us that there was there was a spiritual condition of these people in Capernaum that was not good. See here's the deal, here's my question. Why were these people so spiritually dead, this congregation, this synagogue in Capernaum, why were they so spiritually dead that it had been possible for a demon-possessed man To attend their synagogue without being disturbed by what was sung or prayed or taught until Jesus showed up. You get that? How could a demon possessed guy hang out and be a member of their synagogue essentially by association if he wasn't a member? And nothing changed until Jesus came. Or maybe it was that this guy had been there for for many times and and he had series after series of outbursts against God and the elders of that synagogue had no clue, they had no power or authority to know how to deal with this guy. We don't know that ultimately. But Jesus wasn't fazed by this guy's interruption or by his outbursts. Jesus immediately rebuked the demon, right? And said, be silent. Literally, it meant to shut up. Sorry, kids. That's what he said. Shut up. Muzzle it. Come out of him. And just a few words one who had absolute authority and the demons obey and they're gone. It reminds me of that uh, hymn, A Mighty Fortress Is Our God by Martin Luther. I love that hymn. Remember the third verse when it says, and I was going to sing it, but I'll just say it. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him his rage we can endure for lo his doom is sure one little word shall fell him that's powerful so what was the response verse 26 through 28 the demon comes out of the man jesus and his authority pronounces the God to muzzle it and get out the demon leaves it cries out it leaves and comes out of the man verse 27 mark tells us that the people were what They were all amazed. That word here is emphatic. Everybody was amazed. You couldn't help but be amazed. They all ask, what is this? What's just happened? We have just heard a new teaching with authority. We have seen authority ourselves. Even demons must obey Jesus. And then what happens? Verse 28, it tells us that Jesus' fame spreads everywhere. Not just Capernaum and Galilee, but all the surrounding regions. Never had the people in Capernaum seen the power of god demonstrated so clearly but folks i don't want you to miss the tragedy they had never seen the power of god demonstrated so clearly but the tragedy was this they saw jesus do such mighty works yet they remained unchanged spiritually that's the tragedy they witnessed the authority of authorities the author himself yet their lives were unchanged. How do I know this? Because Jesus says a lot about Capernaum in Matthew chapter eleven. If you go to Matthew chapter eleven, verse twenty through twenty-four, it's where Jesus is, is uh, pronouncing these woes upon the cities where he has done ministry, who have been unrepented and who have not changed or have not uh, experienced and, and accepted his grace and his mercy. And so Jesus says this in Matthew chapter eleven. He he pronounces these woes upon Capernaum. Listen to what he says. Matthew chapter 11, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of His mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago and sat and in ashes. But I tell you, it it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And then verse 23 of Matthew 11, And you, Capernaum. The way He says that, it's almost like if you're chastising three people in front of you, you have a neighbor, a friend, and a child, and you don't know your neighbor that well. You know your friend pretty well, but your child, I mean, it's your child, bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. To your neighbor, how could you have done this? To your friend, oh, friend, how could you have done this? You're my friend. And then to get your son or your daughter, child, and you, my bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, how could you have done this? That's the kind of the language here that Jesus is using to Capernaum, and you confirm him. How could you miss it? How could you miss me? Will you be exalted to heaven, Capernaum, Jesus says. He says, no, Capernaum, you will not be exalted to heaven. He says, you will be brought down to Hades, Jesus says. For if the mighty works done in your presence had been done in Sodom, Sodom in the Old Testament, you know what happened in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will for you, Capernaum. That's heavy stuff you see the tragedy in this jesus in the midst of his ministry to them they missed him. they completely missed jesus john macarthur in his comments on matthew 20 said this about this he said the people of capernaum never persecuted jesus and few of the people in capernaum they never criticized jesus they never mocked jesus they never ridiculed jesus they never ran him out of town they never threatened his life Yet their sin was worse than if they had done these things. Listen to what he said. Theirs was not the sin of violence or the sin of immorality, but of indifference. The sin of indifference. G.A. Kennedy has written in his poem, Indifference, that they only just passed down the street and left him in the rain. Jesus' teaching perhaps mildly, mildly interested in them, interested them and his miracles entertained them but nothing more, MacArthur says. His grace never rent their hearts, he says. His truth never changed their minds. His warning about sin never provoked repentance. And his offer of salvation never induced faith. And because of their indifferent belief, Jesus said to them, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable in the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, Capernaum. So why is the story about the sleepy, indifferent people of Capernaum and the infinite authority of Jesus so important to us? why does mark paint this picture for us because this mark gave us this vignette of jesus and his authority and his power over the spiritual and the physical realm as a gift it's a gift of disturbance if you will now how is being disturbed a gift because we have to be disturbed folks we are creatures of comfort i love comfort i am a creature of comfort it's one of my biggest idols and it's deadly it's like a warm wool blanket that snuffs the life out of you so mark gives us this wake-up call it's this gift that we need to be disturbed no one in the synagogue had been disturbed in a long long time but when it what happens when jesus comes on the scene suddenly everything is different when jesus arrives they knew something had been missing Reminds me of the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You ever read that by C.S. Lewis? If you haven't read that series, that children's series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think it really is one of the best uh, metaphors, best uh, allegories of the gospel of Jesus I have ever read. But it reminds me in particular of the scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You remember this when Aslan, who's the Christ figure in Lewis's story, Aslan is killed by the White Witch, Right? And he uh, is killed on the stone table. It is broken in two. And uh, Lucy and Susan are just in bewilderment and sorrow that Aslan is gone. He's dead. The great king. And then Aslan is resurrected. He uh, comes back to life. And it's this picture in the story where Aslan is talking with Susan about his death and resurrection. And he's talking with Susan about why this had to happen. I love this scene. We were listening to this on a book on tape, my family, one day, and I, I had to pull over because I wept. This was so good. Aslan says this to Susan. He says, Susan says, Aslan, what does this mean? What does this all mean? Aslan said, it means that though the witch knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still that she does not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked back a little further back, into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read that there is a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Whew. Folks, the great reversal has begun. and backwards. Redemption has come through Jesus. The always winter of Narnia is gone. It's gone. You cannot stay unaffected with Jesus. You have to answer that question when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You cannot stay unaffected. You cannot. Do not stay unaffected because Jesus has taken the sinner's place. He has taken your place. You know, earlier on in the story of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Edmund betrays his brothers and sisters, right? He betrays Aslan by going to the White Witch and telling her about Aslan's return to Narnia. Edmund is the traitor. The witch comes to Aslan to demand Edmund's life, which is her due. And listen to what the White Witch says. She tells Aslan, You know that every traitor belongs to me, don't you, Aslan? Every traitor belongs to me. They are my lawful prey. And that for every treachery, I have a right to kill. That human creature is mine, she says. His life is forfeit to me. His blood is my property. Aslan admits that this is true, but then he works out a deal with the witch. That he dies in the traitor's death. Asin says she would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. The table is here for us. This one it's right here for us. Christ became cracked on the cross. His body was what? Broken see the clear picture of the gospel here? It's good news, folks. You're only going to find life in Jesus. And you're only going to find deliverance from the evil that plagues you and the principalities of power and darkness that plague you. The doubts, the fears, the lies that the enemy whispers to you, you only find deliverance through Jesus himself. He is the great lion, if you will. And when he roars, I pray that his children come to him. But when he roars and you don't know his voice, you'll have no way. The only way to come to Jesus is through his death and resurrection. And that's what we celebrate here at this table this morning. We celebrate. We wallow in it. We cherish this communion table. We cherish what Jesus has done for us. So this is a table, not a morning, but it's a table celebration so I want to ask the elders to come forward now as we prepare to serve communion I know it's not Christmas yet we're actually a long way off my kids hope it's not a long way off (laughs) but you know I can't help but think of the line in the hymn Joy to the World where it says no more let sins and sorrow grow nor thorns infest the ground, for He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. That's what we're here to celebrate this morning. Far as the curse is found, He has come. He has come and He goes to the very deepest places of your sin and heals you. His love penetrates to the very darkest corners of your heart because He loves you. This table here this morning is not Wellsprings table. This is not a Presbyterian or an ARP, Associate Reform, Presbyterian table. This is Christ's table. So you are invited this morning to partake in communion in the celebration of the death and the resurrection of Jesus if you have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation. If you're not yet sure where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, it's okay. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be embarrassed by that. Let these elements pass by you, and, and it's okay. It really is, it's okay. Let these elements pass by you, and use this time to examine your heart and go, Lord, where do I really stand with you? Do I really know you? Do I really trust you? Maybe your child is not yet a communicant member of this church and has not stood before the elders and made a viable profession of faith. Then we, too, let, you, let me encourage you to let these elements pass by your child. And again, it's not an issue of embarrassment or an issue of pride. But this is an opportunity for you to explain the precious and deep truths of the Gospel to your child. Because remember that Jesus died in a traitor's stead. He died in your stead as a traitor. And He was pierced for our transgressions and He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace with God was put upon Him. And by His wounds, We, the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed he took this bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me let's pray Lord Jesus we thank you and we praise you and we are infinitely grateful for your willingness to die in a traitor's place we don't deserve that. We utterly don't deserve it, But we thank you that, Jesus, your body was broken for us. And so we ask, Lord, that you consecrate this bread from a secular to a sacred use that we might always remember, relish, rest in your sacrifice of love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.